And so today we're excited to start our new vision series. Before we do that, let's pray together. Would you pray with me? Oh God, we bow our heads, we close our eyes, just again to pause and recognize this is your word. Uh, You've inspired these scriptures. We thank you for preserving them. Uh, But now today, we need you to speak in our day. And so open up our eyes, open up our ears, and most of all, open up our hearts that we might hear from you. We want you to steer this ship, and so we invite you to take the steering wheel. And we'll be so faithful and so careful to follow you each day ahead. For Christ's sake and his reputation. Amen. It was on January 25th, 2013 that I read in the news, news of a dolphin. Uh, They uh, were tracking this particular dolphin as it made its way out of the Atlantic Ocean and into uh, a dirty canal in New York State. It was uh, in national headlines. Maybe you remember this story. The dolphin became trapped there, uh, far, far away from its natural habitat, and sadly, uh, the poor thing eventually died. A team of marine biologists examined this poor animal to solve the mystery of why it came inland in the first place, and the autopsy revealed that a parasite had attached itself uh, to the part of the dolphin's brain that serves as its internal guidance system. And so basically, the dolphin became internally confused and got lost. It lost its way. It lost its way. Friends, do you know sometimes that can happen to churches? Uh, churches can lose their way. They can kind of lose their internal guidance system. Uh, they can get distracted by things that are nice, but maybe they shouldn't be primary. Uh, we have goals that we pursue that sometimes can get us off a track, and so sometimes even churches can lose their way, and for some churches that can spell disaster. Uh, let me share with you some troubling trends. There's about 350,000 churches in this country. Four out of five of them, though, are either plateaued or declining. Every year, that means about 7,000 churches close their doors. What's even more disturbing is that uh, there's nowhere near that number of new church plants springing up. All this is happening, by the way, when non-Christian groups are growing. For example, recently Pew Research indicated that the number of Americans with no religious affiliation, uh, who we call the nuns, is climbing. According to the recent survey, uh, 23%, that means nearly a quarter of Americans claim no religious affiliation. That's a seven-point jump in just the last seven years. That's about 56 million people, that little pie chart up there, that red section. That's a lot of people. Uh, Chances are you're related to a nun or two. If not, chances are really high that you at least know a nun. Uh, The most striking statistic that caught my attention, and this is the last one I'll share, was the percentage of young people that are leaving the church. In his book, You Lost Me, uh, David Kenneman cites that among those ages 18 to 29, there's a 43% drop-off of church engagement. That percentage represents 8 million million 20-somethings who were active churchgoers as teenagers, but who are no longer active in church in any meaningful way by the time they reach their 30th birthday. Sad. Now you might say, why? Well, there's several reasons. He cites several in the book for their exodus. Two of them that stood out to me was that there was a lack of understanding for artistic expression. In other words, young people are entering creative fields And older Christians thought of those as too worldly. Secondly, for many of them, their negative experiences were because Christian churches demanded a culture of doubtlessness. 
In other words, it was not a safe place to express or combat their genuine scientific questions and struggles. And so they found the church to be shallow and irrelevant compared with the complexities they found elsewhere in society and unhelpful to the real issues that they were facing. So they said, you lost me. You lost me. These are troubling realities. These are troubling statistics. Now, I don't mean to sound alarmist, but these are real problems and we can't ignore them. As Christians, we want to engage our culture and see it transformed by the gospel and flourish, but increasingly, uh, the Christian voice in our culture has become marginalized and is becoming more and more minimized, and of course, the effects of that are troubling. Uh, We're losing our voice in the culture, We're, we're losing a lot of our churches, and for many of us, we're losing our kids. Is anybody paying attention? <laughs> I used to play basketball in high school. Now, if we looked up the scoreboard and, and we were losing 28-4 to four in the first quarter, the coach would call a timeout to talk about what we were doing. And we would get in a huddle. And I can tell you, nobody in that huddle would be like, hey, check out these new sneakers I got, Nike Airs. For the... No. The coach was like, you guys are getting killed out there. We've got to change something. You guys are going to start full-course press, or you've you got to speed things up, or you've got to slow things down. Something's got to change if you guys are going to get back in this game. And that's what I'm saying. We should ask ourselves, how do we get back in this game? I mean, ours is a generation where everything nailed down seems to be coming loose. Things that we thought would never happen are happening, and thoughtful Christians are asking the question, what kind of a man, what kind of a woman, what kind of a church does it take to make an impact on this culture? That's what this vision series will seek to ask and answer. As we talk about the vision of our church, a vision will serve as a compass uh, to point us in the right direction. Vision is an optical term. It asks and answers the question, what do I see? Where are we headed? And over the past, say, half a year or so, our ministry leadership team in conjunction with our elder board, in in conjunction with an organization we work with called The Center, has been doing a a process that we call visioneering, developing a vision and strategic plan. And so we sat down and we started asking this question, what does God want our church to look like in the next three to five years? And every part of that question was important. What does God want our church to look like in the next three to five years? Although we do have a current vision, what we also discovered is that Almost no one in our church knew the vision. This is dangerous, but does anybody in here know the current vision? Look around. So we found that to be a problem. And so we decided to create something that was a little bit more memorable and a little bit more inspiring and a little bit more catalytic, something that's true to our history and true to our DNA, but that's also fresh for today. And it took a really long time, about six months. And now we want to share it with you. Uh, For the first month of this series, it will be about our vision, and then the following two months will be about our core values. And so we're going to talk about a variety of things. This month, we will have one message focused inward on how we as a body need to grow deeper, a second message focused on welcoming newcomers, and then a third about what it would look like for us to reach out in this community. You can read the whole vision in your bulletin outline notes today. I would encourage you to do that. I don't want to insult you. I know that you can read, but I do want to draw your attention to the tagline at the bottom, which is this. Here's what we want to be about, expanding the table for the glory of God. 
expanding the table for the glory of God. Can we say that together? Expanding the table for the glory of God. That's all I want to unpack with you today, just that sentence, and I'll take it in three parts. We'll talk about the table, the expansion, and the glory of God. The table, the expansion, and the glory of God. The first point is theological. The second point is invitational. The third point is doxological. Allow me to direct your attention to the scriptures, to the gospel, according to Luke chapter 14, uh, where Jesus tells a very famous parable. You're probably familiar with this parable. It's called the parable of the great banquet. Now, a parable, if you don't know, is just a made-up story that's used to make a point. And he begins like this in 16. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. Now, whenever you read a parable, a very good question to ask yourself is, where am I in the parable? It's a very good question because you're in there. You're always in there. And a secondary question that you should always ask whenever you're reading the parables is, where is God in the parable? Because he's in there. He's always in there. And here, it's pretty clear that the banquet giver is God. The banquet meal itself is a metaphor for a very large celebration of God's people that will occur at the end of the world. That's good news. Isn't that something? It seems like every time I open up my phone and read my news app, I hear bad news. But every time I open up the scriptures, I see good news. It's the story of God at work in this world, piercing the darkness, bringing his light and his life, and we're told a new banquet is coming, a new day is coming, a new world is coming. That's good news. Whenever Jesus describes his kingdom, whenever he talks about what it's going to be like one day, he always uses this image of a great party. Now, Jesus was Jewish, and they know how to party, as do all cultures that typically surround the Mediterranean Sea, the Greeks, the Italians, the Turks. I know I married into an Italian family over 20 years ago, and frankly, I'm German, and before that, I had no idea what I was missing. No clue. They know how to throw a party. They've got the food, they've got the music, they've got many, many people. It goes on till one in the morning. Did I mention the food? Uncle Mario brings the eggplant parmesan, and Aunt Lydia brings the pierogies, and then you got the penne vodka, and I mean, it's just prime rib, whatever you need. It's the blowout of all blowouts. Jesus says, you want to know what my kingdom is like? It's the greatest banquet you could ever imagine. Study the life of Jesus in the Gospels, and just notice how often he refers to parties. All of his stories were about these parties. Like this one. Or how about the story of the prodigal son? Remember, his son leaves, he comes back home, and what does he do? Throws him this big, huge party. Remember the first miracle that Jesus performs? He's at a wedding feast. They're running out of wine. And he says, how would you like to have like 150 gallons more? Let's keep this party going. I came to bring the spirit of rejoicing and and joy and celebration. Remember that story about Zacchaeus, the the wee little man who was up in the sycamore tree? Remember when he came down? What did Jesus say? Zacchaeus, you're a dirty, filthy, rotten sinner and you're going to hell. No. He said, Zacchaeus, today we're going to your house, man, and we're going to have a big party there. You know what's kind of funny? Jesus did this thing 
And then they accused him of being a friend of sinners and of being nothing but a wine bibber and a glutton. And Jesus got upset. He said, you know, John came and he was dead serious. He had this fire and brimstone message. He was eating locusts and honey. I guess that was the original gluten-free diet. You know, and he was, you know, the, the message of repentance. And you didn't like him. And now I come and I'm attending these parties and you don't like me either. It seems like maybe you don't like anybody. There's people in the church like that, isn't there? I don't like what's going on here. It's not like it was back in the days of Peter Pendel. There's always these complainers. But Jesus said, I've come to bring a banquet, to bring good news. I'm the bridegroom. My kingdom is coming. And that's our gospel. We have good news to share. He's coming back, you know, and he will make all things new. And the work that he began in you, he will bring that work to completion. Now let's get back to this parable. After the invitation goes out, look at the responses of some of the invited guests. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married. I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to the master. And this is where in the movie they cue the eerie music. Because it says, then the owner of the house became angry. And the reason is because think about these excuses. The first guy, how long is it going to take you to look at your new field? Like 20 seconds? What are you going to do with the rest of your day? The second guy, same thing. The guy who got married, I mean, maybe you could say he's appealing to the Old Testament principle of not having to go into the military for the first year of marriage, but you couldn't force him into service like that. But that this isn't military service. It's a party. Your wife can come too. Why don't you just bring her? Your excuse makes no sense. New Testament scholar Craig Blomberg said about these excuses, what all three share is an extraordinary lameness. They are meant to strike the hearers as ridiculous and to point out the absurdity of any excuse for rejecting God's call into his kingdom. This is a polite way of saying, I don't want to spend any time with you. And as a result, the owner gets the hint, becomes angry, and he's not mad at them because they committed some sin. He's not mad at them because they did something illegal or immoral. He's upset because they just don't value spending time with him. You put a field before God. You put your oxen before God. You put your family before your invitation to sit down at a banquet with God. I mean, something else was more important to you than being with me at my celebration. And that's everything I need to know about you. And so here's what we learn about the first group. There are no legitimate excuses for rejecting God and his invitation to his table. But don't let that discourage you, because human failure never thwarts God's plan. Oh, the banquet will go on. Before we see what happens next in the parable, I want to talk to you about the expansion. We've seen the table, we've seen the expansion, and I want to just provide for you a theological foundation for the next point I'm about to make. I was greatly helped 
in this matter by Dr. Greg Beal of Westminster Seminary, who has this book called The Temple and the Church's Mission. In this book, he argues from Genesis to Revelation that there is a unifying theme, and the theme is this, slowly but surely, God's image and God's presence is expanding over all of creation. And he starts in Revelation 21, where John sees this vision of the new heavens and the new earth. Now stay with me. This is important for you to understand. And he says, why does John see a vision in chapter 21 of the new heavens and the new earth, but then for the rest of the two chapters, all he describes is a city in the shape of a temple that's garden-like? Now that's a really good question. The book is so technical, so let me just simplify it. Basically, he makes this case that even going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, this is always what God had intended to do. And so he says, in a sense, the Garden of Eden was the very first temple, Adam being the very first priest, God's presence being there. And what was Adam's job? Remember, it was Adam's role, Adam's commission. Adam's job was that he was to increase, multiply, subdue, and rule over the earth. He was made in the image of God, and his spiritual mandate was to fill the earth with the image of God. So Adam's job was to expand the borders of the garden, to widen the margins of Eden, and along with his offspring, he would do this until the image of God would cover the whole earth. Now, what's the problem? Adam didn't do that. Adam fell along with the rest of humanity. He fell into sin. He looked inward, not outward. He did not want to spread the glory of God. He wanted to live for his own glory. And as a result, humanity fell. But humanity's failure never thwarts God's vision. And so God continues to give this vision to each one of Adam's offspring. It goes on. You see the same commission to Noah, the same commission to Abraham, the same one to Isaac. And let me just show you the one to Jacob. Look at this, chapter 28. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Why are they supposed to spread out? Because this is the commission of God. And so Greg Beale says this commission keeps getting given over and over and over to the patriarchs, then to the kings, and then to the nation of Israel as a whole. But it's never really fulfilled until Messiah comes. And when Christ comes as the second Adam, he fulfills the original mandate given to the first Adam, namely to go, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, expand the borders of the presence of God to cover over the whole earth. And then Beale says, we read at the book of, in the book of Revelation, there's this new heavens and new earth there. And interestingly, it's in the shape of a cube and it has these garden-like features. Do you know there's only one other cube in the Bible? It's in the temple. And then in Revelation, he says the whole city is like made of gold. Wasn't the temple made of gold on the inside? And then John says in Revelation 21, and I, I looked and I sold, I saw that there was no temple. Why not? Because the whole thing is a temple. That's why not. Because Habakkuk chapter 2 has been fulfilled. Uh, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, that's the future. That's where we're headed. That's what John sees in the book of Revelation. That's our destiny. And in the meantime, our Lord invites us to be a part of what he's doing. And he says, until I return, your vision, our vision, the vision of any church is to continue to expand the borders of God's presence wherever you go. Now, how do we do that? Whenever someone becomes a believer, what are we doing? We're expanding the presence of God and expanding his temple. That's our task. 
That's where we find our mission. That's where we find our vision. This is God's expansion project. It was that way from the very beginning. It's never changed. He is about creating a worldwide temple that covers the whole earth. There's an old hymn that says it this way. By grace, God makes a people, claims them for his own, lifts them up through Christ the Savior, Christ the cornerstone. By grace, God builds a people, his own temple pure, standing firm on one Redeemer, one foundation sure. By grace, Lord, let your temple stretch from shore to shore, built on Christ who comes to claim her, his forevermore. And so here we see this theological foundation. Now let's go back to that parable. Thanks for sticking with me through that. Here's what happens. After some people reject his invitation, and some could say that would be the first century Jewish nation, perhaps that's true, the master expands the invitation. Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Now, this is good news. Thank God this is his list, not my list. Thank God this is his list, not ours. And thank God I don't get to write the invitation list. If we wrote the list, it would be full of all kinds of pharisaical do-gooders. You know, we'd have all the wrong people on the list for all the wrong reasons. Jesus says, no, you go out and I want you to bring in those people who don't deserve it, who can't pay you back, and who will gladly come to be with me. And Jesus said, everybody's included, the orphan and the widow. Make sure those people who feel left out and left behind are all welcomed in. All the people that the religious establishment said, no, you can't come in here. Jesus said, invite them in. In our community, there are people from all spheres of influence who are hurting and need this good news, people from all backgrounds and races and ages who need this good news. And Jesus said to them back then, and he says today, whosoever will may come. And then if you come unto me, I will in no way cast you out. Oh, that's good news. No, you don't have to clean up your life before you can come. You come, and Jesus will clean up your life later. But for now, just come. You're invited. So the servant with this new commission goes out and he comes back. 22. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Oh man, notice that phrase. There's still room. For those of us who are already on the inside, have you forgotten what good news it was when you first came that there was still room for you? Aren't you glad that it came time, when it came time for you to get your invitation, that there was still room? Oh, this is good news. The same thing is true today, though, for others. There's still room. This is our calling to offer them the same invitation that we got. That's part of the reason why we here went from one to two services, just to make room, because we want to make sure there's always room. It reminds me of that old song they used to sing at the Billy Graham Crusades. There's room at the cross for you. There's room at the cross for you. Though millions have come, there's still room for one. There's room at the cross for you. Though millions have found him a friend and have turned from the sins they have sinned, the Savior still waits to open the gates and welcome a sinner before it's too late. There's room at the cross for you. This is what the master says. And so here's what happens next. Look at 23. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that, purpose statement, my house will be full. Friends, God wants his house to be full. 
Friends, God wants guests at his table. So that my house will be full. Here's the second lesson from this second group. God's generosity is put on display as he expands his kingdom wider and wider and wider. This is so important because some people don't actually think it's God's will for the church to grow. They think it's going to somehow compromise the purity of the doctrine or something like that. That's not biblical. What's biblical is God says, I want my house to be full. I want my house to be full. Can we nail that down today as a church? Can we just say it's God's will for our church to grow? It's God's will for us to be part of a church that's growing, and God wants me to be a part of the inviting. And so let me just ask you very specifically, friend, who are you inviting to this banquet? Who are you praying for? Who is that person in your life? Who is that one that God is calling you to invite? You know, there's over 300,000 people here in Somerset County, New Jersey alone. And we're one of the bigger churches in our area. And what do we have, like a little over 300? There's more country lanes and roads and places to go down. And there's more seats at God's table. And God calls us to invite them. So what about your road? What about your country lane? Maybe you need to first invite them over to your own table. Maybe it's not quite time to invite them to the Lord's table, but maybe, maybe one step is to invite them to your own table and get the leaf out of your table to, to invite them into your home and to show them some love and compassion. And then maybe over time, as you love your neighbor, you can take the next step of eventually inviting them to the Lord's table to begin a relationship with him. Just watch what God does as you prayerfully pursue those who need an invitation. This is what we need, I'm convinced. This is what our culture needs. Friends, the problems in our culture are not going to be solved by the government. The problems in our culture are not going to be solved by education. The problems are going to be solved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what's needed. There's power right there. Do you believe that? One of my heroes, Pastor Harry Reeder, who, who writes often on church revitalization, uh, was giving an interesting talk that I attended, and he told this really funny story about his very first car. He said, when I was 16, my father bought me a car at an auction for 75 bucks. It was a 57 Ford. So when he told me, I was excited to go see it. But then when I did, there was only one problem. It was pink. (laughs) Dad, I can't drive this car. It's pink. My dad said, it's coral, son. (laughs) Then he goes, believe me, it was pink. He said, said, uh, you know, Son, a, a poor ride is better than a proud walk. <laughs> and he said, my dad said that so convincingly, I thought maybe it was in the Bible or something like that. <laughs> he goes out to look at this car, and then he said, my mind completely changed when we popped the hood. And underneath of that hood, there's this 390 engine with two four-barrel carburetors. The car used to be a South Carolina highway patrol car. So he said, I decided to drive it despite the color. And he said, as I was driving that car, what was interesting is these Corvettes and Roadsters would pull up on side of me at, at red lights, and they used to laugh because it didn't look like much on the outside. But boy, were they surprised when the light turned green. <laughs> Friends, the world laughs at the gospel, but we need to show them what's under the hood. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The table is where we find the power. This is what the world needs, an invitation to the table of God. So we've seen the table, we've seen the expansion, and now we see the reason of it all, the purpose of it all, the glory of God. Because whenever there's a party giver, whenever there's a banquet giver, 
Whenever there's a benefactor, that is the person who gets the glory. The beneficiary gets the benefit of the gift. The benefactor always gets the glory. And that's important because the vision of any healthy church begins and ends right there with the glory of God. That's important because if you start at the wrong place, you're going to end up at the wrong place. The vision is never about a pastor being lifted up. The vision is never about any one ministry being lifted up. The vision is always about Jesus being lifted up. He said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. I remember 10 years ago when I first got into pastoral ministry and I didn't know what I was going to say and I feel like the Lord told me deep in my heart, just tell them what my son did for them. That's our message. The church begins with God. It's all about the glory of God. The church does not begin with you. The story is not about you. It's not about me. Frankly, that's way too small of a story. The vision begins and ends with the nature and character of God, the gospel of God, and the glory of God. And contrary to what our culture is trying to tell us, if you want to live a satisfying life, you got to realize something. It's not about you. That's our message. The gospel is not, you're so great. The gospel is, God is so great. Kathleen Nielsen puts it this way, the Bible's message is worse than we like to think in regard to our sin but it is much better than we dream in regard to our hope. Do you realize how counter-cultural that message is? Our culture says, wait a minute, I thought I was great. I thought I was supposed to have good self-esteem. I thought I was special. My teachers told me I was like a snowflake. There's never been another person ever like me in the history of humankind. That's what my coach told me. He said, you're the man. I believed him. We get fed a steady diet of this man-centered thinking our whole lives. But listen, the Bible doesn't start with you, and it doesn't end with you. And the Bible teaches that this whole thing is not about us and our glory. It's all about God and his glory. That's why the Westminster Confession says the chief end, the purpose of man, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. God is about his glory, not mine. God doesn't want me to be gloried in. He wants his son Jesus to be gloried in. The gospel is not about God making much of me. The gospel is about God saving me so I can make much of him. Now, I realize this kind of stings at first, but it's really liberating. It's really good news. Let me tell you why it's good news. First of all, you're not the center of the universe. Okay, breathe out. The pressure's off. Second of all, The other reason why this is good news is it really gives you peace from the problems in life because the reason why he gets so upset and angry all the time is because he kind of thinks it's about you. And it's really not about you. And the reason why sometimes churches can get totally off track with the things that happen is because they think the church is about them. And they think their church is all about their preferences. And they think their church is all about their opinions. And they think their church is all about their feelings. And they think the church is all about their desires. And they think the church is all about getting things their way. And like that dolphin, we get off track. And the more things don't go their way and the more preferences they have that don't get met, the more upset they become because they think it's all about them. Don't you see the man-centeredness of that? We can't lead a church like that. Don't you see the self-centeredness of that? Friends, everything that exists, especially the church, But including everything, including you, including me, exists for this one transcendent purpose to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And when we realize this, it's not only a relief, 
but it's also ultimately our purpose for living, our reason for living. That's why we're here, to live for him, to make much of him, to glorify him. There's only two ways to live your life. You can live your life, A, for you, or B, for God. There's only one way, there's only two ways to build a church. You can build a church, A, for you, or you can build a church, B, for God and for his glory. And that's the foundation we want to build our church on, for the glory of God. And so there's the three components, the table, the expansion, and the glory of God. And so that's our vision statement, expanding the vision, expanding the table for the glory of God, expanding the table for the glory of God. Our community needs this message. Our country needs this message. With all the political divisions and racial divisions and polarization, we need an invitation to the banquet. Oh, that's never going to happen in our culture. That's just not possible. They're not all going to come to the same table. you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Did you see the way they celebrated Villanova after they won the Final Four last weekend? There was blacks and whites and Asians and Latinos and Republicans and Democrats, men and women, all celebrating together. Why? They found something transcendent to celebrate. That's the message we have. We have something transcendent to celebrate. And it is this invitation to the table of God. There's a kingdom, there's a party, there's a banquet, there's a hope, there's a future. Everybody's invited. It's going to be the greatest banquet you can ever even imagine. That's our vision. This is the way things will end and we get to start now. When I was in college, they had us read T.S. Eliot. And he's got this one poem that's pretty famous called The Wasteland. You probably read it. Well, this is the way he closes that poem. This is the way the world will end. This is the way the world will end. This is the way the world will end. Not with a bang, with a whimper. Now, I respect T.S. Eliot as a great literary scholar. But that's not what my Bible says. The Bible says this is the way the world will end. This is the way the world will end. This is the way the world will end. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah, amen. There's a banquet. There's a table, there's a party, and you're invited. That's good news. So that's our vision, expanding the table for the glory of God. Is that an easy vision? No. Is that a difficult vision? Yes. Is it worthwhile? Absolutely. There is something transcendent that we can all agree upon, and that is expanding the table for the glory of God. This is a personal passion of mine. I grew up right here in Somerset County. This is home for me. My heart breaks for this area and the problems that we see. When I remember feeling God's inward call on me to go into ministry, I remember being so shocked at first that God would even think of using me. I was so terrified of public speaking. I used to really quiver up here like crazy with my voice and everything, but God just placed this fire on side, inside, and it just wouldn't go away. And um, at first, I was pretty, pretty terrible at preaching. You should have heard some of those early sermons. I've repented of those reminds me of the young seminary student, and uh, he, got, he told his preaching professor, you know, every time I get up to the pulpit to preach, I get nervous. And the professor said, yeah, that's okay. Every time you get to, up to preach, God gets nervous too. <laughs> that was me. But I learned, and God gave me this passion for his word, for his people, for himself, and he's called me here, and I have this deep sense of a burden for this area, and I don't ever want to lose sight of that because that's where I get my energy. Sometimes it feels like a firestorm of frustration inside my soul that just won't go out on the one hand. 
I feel like I was made for this. On the other hand, it feels like this incredible burden I have to carry around. And it reminds me of this story. One time I was listening to the musician Bono talk about a burden that he has, particularly for social issues on the continent of Africa. And he talked about the first time that he went over there. And he went to Ethiopia with his wife, Allie. And I remember him talking about just going around and looking at what was going on over there and just walking around and seeing the reality, seeing the poverty and seeing the hunger. And all he kept saying was, oh, no, 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 no. That's exactly the way I feel about the issues that we have here in our area of New Jersey. I see teenagers graduate, go off to college, and leave the Christian faith, and I go, oh, no, no, no. No, no, no. We've got to do something about that. I see marriages struggling and sometimes ending unnecessarily and the kids suffering. I go, no, 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 no. We've got to do something about that. I see a teenage girl get pregnant and she's desperate and terrified and she's considering abortion over life and I go, oh, no, 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 no. We gotta do something about that. And you know, during this whole visioning process, a few months ago, we got together as elders and, and all 12 of us got in a room and said, how about you? What, what are you burdened with? And one of the guys goes, you know, I see ethnic minorities in our community that don't really feel welcome at our church I'm really burdened for that. And we go, no, no, no. No, no, no. We got to do something about that. Another guy goes, you know, I, I see this current opioid crisis in our area and how we're dealing with it and how it's killing our kids. And we go, no, 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 no. We got to do something about that. And some of our other elders talked about poverty issues and some talk about hunger issues and other ones talked about adoption And on and on, and we just kind of shared the room, all of us sharing these heavy burdens for the problems in our area. And so I know there's people in this room that share this same burden with me for our area. I know it. And I know from talking to many of you that many of you share the same burden too. And so here's what we want to be about. We want to be about expanding the table for the glory of God. And for the next few months, we're going to talk about how to do that. And here's why this is so important. Let me just ask you a question. What is the future of our church worth? I want you to think about that. What is the future of our church worth? Or let me ask it this way. What is the faith of the next generation of Millington Baptist Church worth? What's the faith of your children worth? What's the faith of your grandchildren worth? You know what I say? It's worth everything. Any change necessary within the boundaries of the biblical record, of course. But it's worth anything. I would say, along with the Apostle Paul, I will try by all means to save some. So here's the other thing about this parable. Who are you in the parable? Because at some point there's an expiration date to this invitation. Did you notice that about the parable? At some point it becomes too late. And so it's really, we don't really have time for people lobbying to get their own way. We really don't have time for making sure our, my preferences are met. We really don't actually have time for any sort of petty disagreements that nobody on the outside of these walls really actually cares about. We're losing ground. There is a transcendent purpose we all need to circle around. Come on. 
If you're a fellow believer in this area and you care about this community and you care about this church and you care about the table and the glory of God and the message of the gospel, in light of what's at stake, in light of who's at stake, we need you on board. This vision is worth it. Can you imagine a church that's fired up about this vision? Can you imagine a church full of people excited about expanding the table for the glory of God? Let's be that church. And here's our message. Our message is that we in the parable get to be, if we choose, that servant who goes out to make the invitation. And the invitation sounds a little bit like we see in the book of Revelation at the end where it says, and the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. That's our message. Expanding the table for the glory of God. Amen?